So the joke around here is that I always wear black. I have actually five identical black polo shirts, just to make it easy. But apparently, Alka tells me I agreed uh, to wear something colorful if the youth um, did well in uh, reaching their target to raise money to go to a conference, a youth conference in the UK. And apparently, my blue shirt wasn't enough. And this is the only other one I have that has color. Yeah, it's better, is it? This is 20 years old, this shirt. <laughs> Busting out of it. People can still donate. It's still, still, but this is it, right? This is, I'm done. Okay. The uh, board is outside, you'll see, and you can still donate to send the youth to the UK. All right. Um, this show is actually totally inappropriate for the message I'm preaching today. Black would have been way better. Um, so if you struggle as you're, you know, well, just close your eyes and listen, all right? <laughs> We've subtitled this series, um, An Antidote to Comfortable Christianity. Um, I took this quote from uh, Kent Hughes and his excellent commentary uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. He says, no other section of Scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It is violent, but its violence can be our ongoing liberation. It is the antidote to the pretense and sham that plagues Christianity. Strong words there. It's violent because when we take this uh, seriously, it's like a bit like having open heart surgery. Um, and I, that's what I hope will happen to us as we go through the Beatitudes together, because we probably need it more than we realize. You know, our spiritual arteries can get hardened. They can get clogged up by the influences and the thinking of this world, and uh, often with fatal consequences. When Jesus first spoke these words that we read in the Sermon on the Mount as the crowd gathered to him, and what we have there is really a distillation of his teaching that day. It was really to give hope to the poor, the marginalized, and the afflicted, to let them know that the kingdom of heaven was for them. Um, but at the same time, he was also addressing people's hearts. And it must have been very challenging for them because he was calling them to live by a higher ideal than even the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. Um, he was calling them to a purity of heart that, that meant you know, not even looking at a woman with lustful intent, intent, let alone adultery. It meant not just forgiving your enemies, but loving them, doing good to them. He was calling uh, for a standard of living that his, you know, his hearers must have felt was impossible to attain, like some huge mountain that would be impossible to climb. I can remember the first mountain that I hiked in New Hampshire. Uh, it was a big mountain. 
Uh, remember the name in a minute, but uh, you know what it's like when you're going through the trees and you, and you start to get onto that incline and it gets steeper and steeper and there are times when you have to use your hands as well as your feet to get up the rock face and you're scrambling up and you know, your lungs are burning and your, feet, your legs are on fire and you know, it's physically exhausting and you wonder at times if you're even going to make it to the top and there are times you want to quit you know, and uh, maybe you know, give up and go back down. And uh, it was a major mountain. That was it. It was Mount Major. Yeah, you real hikers here. Because you know, of course, it's not a major mountain. It's a pretty minor one. It's just a foothill, really. Uh, 1,700 feet. It's the one all the school kids run up, right? Some of you have uh, hiked much bigger mountains, I know, and of course the, the biggest one in New Hampshire, in fact, in the whole of the northeast of America is Mount Washington at 6,000 feet. Now, that's a tough one. Imagine, though, you're standing on top of Mount Washington, okay, where they've recorded some of the fastest wind speeds on the planet. You're on top of 6,000 feet up on top of Mount Washington. You're standing there, and you look up at Mount Everest, five times bigger at almost 30,000 feet. I mean, Mount Everest is an impossible mountain to climb unaided. And many have died attempting it. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is the Mount Everest of Scriptures. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, The Sermon on the Mount comes to us and says, There is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it. That you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive you have not understood it. And surely that was part of Jesus' intention that we're faced with our absolute inability to live God's way, right? That we're faced with the enormity, therefore, uh, of our sin and that it would ultimately drive us to Jesus for forgiveness and for help because uh, it's also in Jesus that we actually find the grace uh, that we need to actually live like this. What, when, when Jesus was describing here in the Sermon on the Mount is life in his kingdom. But it is impossible to enter his kingdom, to live in his kingdom, unless we are born again. As Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, it's unless we are born of the Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us our much-needed heart transplant. That's what Ezekiel prophesied in the Old Testament, uh, that the day was coming when God was going to give his people a new heart, that he would give us a new spirit, put his own spirit in us, to enable us, you see, to live God's way. Uh, the way that Jesus describes here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as, Jesus, as, as Paul sorry, wrote to the Ephesians, uh, in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been blessed, he says, in the heavenly places. 
It's like Jesus has already climbed Mount Everest. I mean, he lived the perfect life we failed to live. But that by faith, we've been placed in him. We're, we're seated with him, he says, in the heavenly places. It's like we're already on top of that mountain because we've been blessed. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been given his spirit. And why? Well, Paul says it's so we might be holy. In other words, we might be like Jesus, that we might live like him. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, this place of blessedness, which is what a Beatitude is, is what it means, uh, blessedness. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount would seem like an impossible mountain to climb unless you understand the Beatitudes. So Jesus gave eight Beatitudes, right? eight uh, pronouncements, if you want, of blessedness. Let's have a look at them now. So that's where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on. We're going to be looking at each one in the weeks to come. We're going to go through them uh, one by one. And, uh, of course, the key word there is what? Blessed. And contrary to what some translations say, that does not mean happy. It's not happy are the poor in spirit. Because happiness is a feeling, right? It's subjective. Blessedness is a statement of being, right? It's actually a gift that God, in his grace, bestows upon us. And it speaks of his favor towards those who are his children, those who have been born of God. They are the ones who know God's approval, who are living with his smile upon their lives. They are the blessed ones, They are the ones who Jesus says will be comforted. They will be satisfied. They're going to inherit the earth. They're going to see God. They are the children of God. This is the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' kind of summary statement for this this, uh, state of blessedness that he begins and ends the Beatitudes with. It's receiving the blessing of God's kingdom, which is why you and I should never, ever try to live up to the Sermon on the Mount in order to, in the hope that God will bless us or that he might approve of us, right? Because it will just crush you. It will crush you. Instead, we have to acknowledge, as Lloyd-Jones said, that we are utterly incapable. We are incapable. We all fall woefully short and so therefore we go to Jesus in whom we receive God's blessing right we receive his approval we receive his grace in Christ and that's what changes us on the inside and enables us to live in this way can you see that's why it all starts with this first beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit see how do you know that you know, who's been blessed? Well, it's the poor in spirit. Does that describe you? What does it mean? Well, the original phrase came from a Greek word that describes someone who lives by begging. Okay, In other words, it's not someone who is just poor. It's someone who is so desperately poor 
that they have to totally depend on the mercy and the giving of others. And so therefore, someone who is poor in spirit is someone who recognizes that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing within themselves to commend them to God, but rather they are absolutely dependent upon his mercy and his grace. It's the total opposite to the self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-loving spirit of this world that we live in. I read uh, somewhere, uh, someone said that if, if you were going to make a sculpture of the 21st century man, it would be someone with their arms wrapped around themselves in loving embrace while kissing their image in the mirror. So how do you become poor in spirit? The answer actually is not to think less of yourself. Many people, people have been tempted to beat themselves up um, over this. You'll never find poverty of spirit by looking at yourself. Right? You'll just get depressed. Rather, you look to Jesus. You have to go to Jesus. And that's where we're going to go now. I want to share one of the great encounters of the Gospels with Jesus Uh, I've actually shared on this recently, uh, but it's such a good story, and I think it will help us to understand what I'm talking about today. So if you have a Bible, you'll find it in Luke chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 36. I'm actually going to read this in the uh, New Living Translation, okay? We'll put it up on the screen. It says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and reclined at the table when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Well, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I've got something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. There was a man who loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. And so he kindly forgave them both, cancelling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he had cancelled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she's anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. And so she has shown me much love. But the person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. 
Well, the men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Lord, give us ears to hear what your word is saying to us here today. May we feel your word. Lord, may our hearts be changed by it. Lord, I pray. Amen. So in this scene, we've got Simon, who's a Pharisee, meaning that he was very religious. He was a morally upright person, a God-fearing citizen, would have been very respected in his town, no doubt wealthy man. And he's invited Jesus to come and have a private dinner with himself and some friends. He's probably checking Jesus out. He's probably intrigued to know a bit more about this man who had been going around and making a bit of a reputation for himself. And so he invites him over uh, for dinner here. Um, Now, something happens as they're reclining there around the table. And in the Middle East, uh, you would be lying on the floor with your body and feet away from the table. And there they are. They're eating. They're conversing. Something shocking happens. A notorious woman of the town, a prostitute, comes in. This would have been a large open house. Uh, Simon probably did a lot of entertaining. But a woman like this would never normally dare to set foot in a Pharisee's house. She would have known that someone like Simon would never associate with a woman like her. All right? Now, before anyone could say anything, this wayward woman kneels at Jesus' feet and starts to weep. I mean, she's sobbing. She is sobbing, so much so that her tears make his feet wet. And so she then dries them uh, with her hair. If it wasn't already awkward, which it would have been, someone just crying uncontrollably, right? This was very awkward, totally improper. What she did in undoing her hair and wiping his feet dry with it was totally outrageous. Any respectable woman only did that really for her husband in private, certainly in the Middle East. And then she begins kissing them profusely and She's pouring this expensive perfume on them. I mean, the shock and the tension in that room must have been tangible. And right at the center of it all is this host, Simon, who would have been outraged. The interesting thing is that his outrage is not directed towards the woman, but to Jesus. In his heart, he's saying to himself, if this man were a prophet... If this was a spiritual man, he would know what kind of woman this is. He would never allow her to touch him like that. But before he can express his thoughts, Jesus, who knows his heart, he knows what he's thinking, tells him a parable. He says, consider this. There were two people, one owing a moneylender two years' wages. The other just owes two months' wages. Neither of them could repay the money lender. All right? Both are bankrupt, in other words. But the man forgives them both their debt. Which of the two do you think will love him the most? 
Now, by telling this story, Jesus is shifting the focus from himself and putting it onto Simon and this woman. Right? He's making a comparison between the two. He's making us and the hearers there present, he's making us think. You see, who is this spiritually bankrupt person in this room? And of course, most people would naturally think of this prostitute. You know, well, it's the notorious sinner, obviously, because that's how many Christians tend to view the people around them. You know, the man who left his wife for a younger woman, the mother who has abused her children, the young guy living an openly gay lifestyle, the girl who's sleeping around. I mean, it's the broken, isn't it? It's the lost. They are the spiritually bankrupt ones. They're the ones that need Jesus, right? But when you look more closely at this scene, you actually find there are two bankrupt people, not one. You see, the key to understanding what was going on here is in the parable that Jesus told, where there were two bankrupt people. Simon is just as spiritually bankrupt as the woman. Because unlike the woman, he doesn't love Jesus. He's not worshipping Jesus. He's evaluating him. Worse still, as we'll see in a minute, he was disrespecting him. But he can't see it because he doesn't see his need for a savior. And the problem is, you know, we often can't see it either. Right? We deceive ourselves because we compare ourselves with other people. We say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as they are. You often find that in prisons, by the way. I don't know if you've heard that. But often, you know, you talk to a prisoner, they will identify themselves by what they're not. Well, I'm not a pedophile. I'm not a rapist. In other words, I'm not as bad as you think I am. Right? I didn't molest anyone. I just killed someone, right? Shot to the head, clean. In other words, I'm not like that low life over there. Can you see, they're making themselves morally superior by comparing themselves with someone who is worse. It's a form of self-righteousness. And we may laugh at it, but the truth is, you know, we all do that to some degree. How many of us compare ourselves with others? Well, you know, at least I'm not as bad as them, as if that makes us acceptable. But the Bible's absolutely clear. You know, to understand our true spiritual state, you cannot compare yourself with other people. You can only compare yourself with the one to whom we're accountable, to God who is perfect. You see, it doesn't matter whether you are the one owing two months' wages or if you're the one owing two years' wages, both are bankrupt. Can you see? Which is why this isn't just about Simon and the woman. This is about every one of us. Right? We're all in this scene. Because we're either more like Simon or we're more like the woman. Which one are you more like? Let's just look a little closer at the contrast between the two. You see, the main difference between Simon and this woman is that she knew she was spiritually bankrupt, right? And she owned it. She knew that she had nothing to commend herself to God with. 
She knew that she had led a shameful life. She knew that the only way to be made clean and to get right with God was to depend upon God's grace and mercy. And she had come to realize that she could find that in Jesus. You see, that's why she dared to break in on this scene and publicly identify herself with Jesus, right? Not caring a jot what anyone else in the room thought about her or her actions here. She falls down at his feet. And by her actions, she shows that she is worshiping Jesus as God. But see, if you don't get Jesus and the extent of what he's done for us, then this woman's actions are totally over the top. Right? She is crying uncontrollably. She is sobbing. Mascara is running. All right? Nose is probably running. She is a mess. And it's totally awkward. I mean, you know, come on, lady, we're trying to eat a meal here. Right? Get a grip on yourself. Put yourself together. Or someone take her outside, will they? It's embarrassing. But if you really get who Jesus is and what he does in this moment, which the woman seems to be anticipating, right? She is acting incredibly boldly because she is anticipating grace. She knows that from Jesus, she is going to receive grace and mercy. And at the thought of it, she breaks down and weeps, sobs. Maybe you're here today asking yourself, maybe during the worship, why are people clapping? Why are people raising their hands, dancing? I heard someone whoop over here. Come on, get a grip, people. It's a bit over the top. A bit enthusiastic. And, you know, I can totally understand why you might think that's odd. I mean, I thought it was odd as a... 20-year-old punk who had never uh, set foot in the church before. I mean, it was uh, okay to go to a gig and pogo to the piranhas, but, you know, uh, I expected church to be a bit more reserved than that, you know? But then I didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't get grace. But now I've come to understand something of the blessing of God. I'm still understanding it. How amazing his grace is. All that Jesus did for me. And it feels more natural to express myself. And yeah, I can get emotional at times. Just at times. I'm still pretty reserved. I'm, I mean, I'm British after all. Should have been born an African. And maybe that's you as well. And that's okay. You know, maybe you don't like the thought of mascara running down your face. It's okay as long as you don't despise others who do. I really hope you get this. I hope that you come to understand how amazing God's grace is, how incredible Jesus is. And now if people want to clap their hands or raise their hands or kneel down or fall face down in worship, you know, it's totally and completely understandable. But the people who were in the room with Jesus that day, they didn't get it. They didn't get Jesus. They didn't get his message. They certainly, definitely did not get this woman. 
What she did was outrageous. It was over-the-top, emotional. Come on, if you want to do that kind of thing, go to California. We're New Englanders, right? We don't do that kind of thing. But in actual fact, if we look a little closer at this scene, we realize it, it actually wasn't the woman who was being outrageous. It was Simon. You see, in the Middle East, the normal practice if you were hosting a guest, was three things you would do for them. You would greet your guest with a kiss. It was the kiss of acceptance. You would provide water for their feet because the roads were dusty, there's no sewers, they're wearing sandals. And then you would give them oil uh, for their skin because of the sun. Right? That was just standard protocol. To not do those things would have been shameful, disrespectful. And Simon did none of them. No kiss, no water, no oil. And if we have an accurate understanding of this scene, that Jesus, as the incarnate Lord of glory, the Savior of the world, has come into this house as a guest, then Simon's behavior is way more embarrassing, way more outrageous than the woman's behavior. It was outrageous that Jesus should have been so disrespected and treated worse than an unwelcome guest. So can I ask you again, who are you most like? Who are you more like? How are you treating Jesus in your life? Are you more like this woman, expressing devotion to her Savior? Or more like Simon, who at the very best was just going through the motions? Are you just giving Jesus the bare minimum in your worship in your giving in your time your heart maybe you're thinking well why what should we why should we have to bother with the you know the kiss and the uh, the water and, and the oil i mean i invited him into my house didn't i i mean i come to church most sundays why do i need to participate in prayer meetings and small groups. I mean, I even serve some Sundays. I bet that's better than someone, him over there. And I know I don't really tithe, but I do give to the offering. I bet there's others here who don't even do that. I mean, what is it you want? My whole life or something? Yeah, it's so easy to fall into that trap where we've either never really understood the blessing that is ours in Christ or where we've stopped recognizing our need for his grace. And so we just end up trying to justify ourselves, comparing ourselves with others, or we go through the motions. And Christianity becomes like this thin veneer on our lives. It has the appearance of being Christian, but hasn't really penetrated our hearts. And yet Jesus knows our hearts like he knows Simon's heart. You know, we can't fake it with Jesus. We may be able to fool others. You can't fool Jesus. So who are you more like? Simon the Pharisee or the wayward woman? I think if I'm honest, I'm much more like Simon than I care to admit. 
The scary thing is, when Jesus left Simon's house, nothing would have changed, right? You probably wouldn't have even known that Jesus had been there. It was just life continuing on as normal, respectful, law-abiding, citizen, business as usual, without Jesus. Maybe you invited him into your life once. Maybe it was a long time ago. But has anything changed? You see, in contrast, this woman's life was changed forever. She surrendered everything when she gave Jesus her devotion, her dignity, whatever dignity she had left, her possessions. I mean, she poured out this very expensive perfume, just poured it out on Jesus. Even broke the alabaster jar. That jar would have been a, uh, a sign of her trade as a prostitute. And she broke the jar. Right? It was part of her identity. She broke it. She broke with her past. She left her past life behind where she received forgiveness and blessing from Jesus who told her, your faith has saved you. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Who are you more like, honestly? You see, both were spiritually bankrupt. Only one was poor in spirit. And it doesn't matter if I'm a bad, immoral person or whether I think I'm a good, respectable person. The point is, without Jesus, I'm bankrupt. I'm lost. We all are. We all need to be in recovery. Every single one of us needs to be in recovery, right? The point is some recognize that, and they are the blessed ones. They are the poor in spirit. Because they know the only one who can recover us is Jesus. It's only when we come to the realization of how bankrupt we are, how huge our debt is, the enormity of the mountain that is before us. It's only when we recognize our need for grace and we come to find it in Jesus, understanding that he died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven, that he was rejected, he was disrespected, so that you and I could be accepted into the kingdom of heaven and receive God's approval and blessing. Can you see? It's only the poor in spirit who know God's blessing. It's the poor in spirit whose lives are being transformed. It's the poor in spirit who, like this woman, are so full of gratitude it overflows in love for Jesus and for others around us, and yes, even for our enemies. Right? It's those who know that they've been forgiven much, who love much. It's those who know the blessing that they have received in Christ who are then able to be a blessing, to be salt and light in the way that's described in the Sermon on the Mount. So will you admit your need? Will you join with me today in coming to Jesus for grace, for fresh grace? doesn't matter if you're more like Simon or whether you're more like the woman he invites you to come. He invites you to come. 
every one of us, to come and receive forgiveness and grace, to receive his blessing as we come and take communion together now. As we take the bread that represents his body given for us. As we take the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be cleansed. He invites every one of us to come to him now. To come and identify with him as part of our worship. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Will you come to him today? Maybe for some of you here, uh, maybe it's the first time that you'll do, do this. Maybe you've been evaluating him all along. But will you come to him today to receive grace? Maybe your love has waned over the years. You've been going through the motions. Will you come to him this morning and receive grace? Let's stand together, shall we? Let's have the band come back up.